My name is Ian Burns. I'm the president and CEO of Service Credit Union. We understand that money can be complex, emotional, and sometimes uncomfortable as a topic to navigate. In our over 80 plus years in helping our members with financial fitness, we've seen a lot. Welcome to Open Money, a podcast series by Service Credit Union. Through our guest stories, we will unpack the emotional relationships that people have with money in an open, raw, and respectful way. We will be diving into the emotion and challenges in managing one's finances and the resources to help you feel good about your money. Let's get into it. Content warning to our listeners. This episode contains mentions of residential schools and suicide. A woman, a black woman, navigating the financial landscape of a white man's world. The majority of my financial life circulated around this core narrative that wealth would never be in the cards for me. Knowing that my ancestors did not come from financial abundance and seeing the financial struggles of my own family created a story that I would never fit in financially. Only certain people become wealthy. Only certain people make the financial rules. And my role is simply to follow them. So when I decided to start a financial empowerment coaching firm for women, I faced a lot of resistance, most of it internally. However, I knew that there were women in general and women who look like me that needed to see that we can all fit into this financial landscape. So much of the work I do is in educating and coaching my clients on how to manage their money and teaching them the financial literacy they always wish they had. I know this phrase is overplayed, but knowledge truly is power. When we equip marginalized communities with the knowledge of how to spend more intentionally, how to actually take control of their debts, how to invest and build assets and accumulate wealth, that changes the trajectory of the community. And most importantly, the financial footprint that community makes and creates in our society. It enables us all to have a seat at the table and it allows those who have been at the table since the beginning to see finances through our eyes, to learn to create change for us all, and to better create a financial economy that serves people, all people. Jen Harper is an Anishinaabe Ojibwe woman from Northwest Angle 33, which is the Northwestern Ontario Treaty 3 territory. Though she spent over a decade in the food industry before launching her own business in 2015, Cheekbone Beauty, she now feels as if she's found her calling. The cosmetics brand gained buzz by appearing on the CBC's venture capitalist show, Dragon's Den, and is now also available at Sephora. The brand not only pays homage to Jen's indigenous roots, but centralizes giving back as a fundamental tenant of her business and it was all sparked from a literal dream. I always like giggle because it's kind of an odd and interesting way into starting a beauty brand. But in January of 2015, I had a literal, actual dream, middle of the night, pop out of bed. And in the dream, the thing I remember the most every time I tell this story is these native little girls with their brown skin and their rosy little cheeks. And they were giggling and laughing because they had made a mess of themselves and they were covered in lip gloss. I woke up, grabbed my laptop and... It, you know, we, it it was so real to me. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is it. This is like my next thing. This is what I'm going to do. But to rewind a little bit, 
I had just got sober November 26, 2014. And this is two months later that I have this dream. So I'm on this healing path, this journey. At the same time, I was learning about my grandparents' experience in residential or boarding school. And this was a system that was created by the governments at the time and the churches. And what they did was took first people from their reservations and put them in these school systems in order to assimilate them into a, a more European culture or lifestyle. Learning since that happened, like these were um, really resulted in a negative impact on all of our communities. You know, I can't go anywhere around the world without talking to an indigenous group of people that haven't been negatively impacted by colonization in some shape or form. And so I was learning like literally the history of who I was and where I came from and a becoming newly sober at the same time. This whole concept and idea, idea of representation was so um, important to our community and still is. As I've learned more about the industry and this space, the why and, and our why and mission has always been uh, to help every Indigenous person on the planet see and feel their value in the world while we craft sustainable color cosmetics. Anyone who has tried to launch a business will tell you it's not easy. There were plenty of times Jen felt like giving up, she says, but there was something, someone who really inspired her to keep going, her brother. She'd been working on launching the brand for about two years when her brother died by suicide. For me, obviously, new, new in sobriety, and I have this thing filling a massive void or struggle that I previously once had, so that's doing that. Then I go to launch... And I have the most tragic, painful experience of my entire life. Um, and then I realize, you know, after conversation after conversation with my brother BJ before he died, like he grew up on our res and he was a youth worker. I grew up off res with my mom and he would share with me so much stuff and stories of our community and stories about our culture and just honestly, the importance of why this brand needed to exist like he was just so passionate about it, its existence that when some when you lose someone in death and they shared that passion with this for you there was no way I could give up as much as I felt like it and wanted to and the days that I feel like and truly have like okay I you know this is it I'm done I've had enough I remember what he said and he said Jen our kids need hope and what you're doing with this brand is going to be great and so my brother's death has ultimately been the driving force on, on why I never gave up on this, this brand or business. The importance of community is essential for many Indigenous folks, Jen included. But she says, watching the ways both her Indigenous and entrepreneurial communities interact with each other has created not only financial support, but layers of intangible support that have been essential to Cheekbone Beauty's success. I feel like this brand only exists because of them. Like we are only here because of their support. Like since, since the day we launched, you know, I remember like it's all the work and you have the Shopify website up ready to go because we were just de direct to consumer back then. And you think you're like, okay, you're waiting and it's crickets the day you launch the site because you haven't marketed properly. So no one knows you even exist there. Um, However, the more we started to share and go out into community and to events across North America, um, and, and then just, sh it was literally by 
that old fashioned like word of mouth that people would be like, have you heard about this brand? Have you? And so we just saw this community grow and um, grow and grow up over the, these last six years. And it's been quite incredible to realize how powerful community truly is like, uh, and how they can just be here to support and uplift you. But as those tangible and intangible forms of support continue to roll in for cheekbone beauty, Jen says she's aware it's a cycle and she makes it a core mission of her business to give back as well. In terms of gifts back to our community. So we've been able to donate um, over $200,000 back to organizations that support Indigenous youth in some shape or form. And then last year we started our scholarship fund. Um, And so these are the ways like we're like giving back to community it's interesting when I, when learning along the way of, of parts of my culture that I didn't understand always in, and one of the things was that within our communities, the idea of success is not about attaining for ourselves, which, you know, grew up in a world where you felt like, okay, you got to get the job and then get the house and all the things, right? And that's really about satisfying yourself. Whereas the idea of success within Indigenous communities is always how much you give back to your community. And so I've really been able to transform how I think about how I live and what I want to do with my life. As Jen muses on the success of Cheap Bone Beauty, snagging Sephora or gracing the pages of magazines, nothing beats seeing the impact of representation in real time. You know, we've been so blessed to obviously work with Sephora as one of our partners one day that was there and and that's happened. And then I put to talk about Cheekbone Beauty in Entrepreneur Magazine, which I remember I just started reading in 2016 because I really didn't know what even an entrepreneur was before all of this. So um, I made the list of 100 women of influence in, in 2022. Um, and like JLo's on the cover of the magazine. And it's in like, it's not just a digital magazine, you know, that we see so many of like, it's a real physical copy that we got to go pick up. We were doing our, this event in the Eaton Center in Toronto, Canada. And they had put up a massive billboard that said like, it was our branding. It's Cheekbone Beauty now available at Sephora. And I'm sitting there in the mall in that morning and I'm looking up at it. And it, I was like, wow, like it was such an emotional experience because when I was a girl, I remember always wanting to go to the Eaton Center with my dad. But I remember having more of a negative, like as much as I loved shopping, like he would either be fighting or getting into an argument with someone about his native status card would have been accused of like stealing or something. It was never like this positive experience. I'm doing an event at that same Sephora in the Eaton Center. And this little girl comes in with her family and she's with her mom and her, her aunts and her brother. And she's Anishinaabe like me. And uh, I'm putting blush on her and she's just so cute. And she's just got quite the personality. And she's talking about her TikTok account and her brother's shutting her down. And they were just the cutest things. And then they left and I'm driving home and it's like an hour drive that night. And I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is it. This is representation and why it matters. Because 
when you see people doing big things, that gives you the key to go do and build your own thing. And I just, it was such a powerful experience because it truly, even though I've said this a thousand times, representation matters, quite possibly a thousand times. I don't think I felt what it meant until that very, very moment when I was with a child who is somebody like me from the same kind of community and realized that, wow, this is, this is big work. As Cheekbone Beauty was growing their business, they partnered with Raven Indigenous Capital in 2020, a Vancouver-based Indigenous-led and owned capital firm. And as Jen says, they were able to offer Cheekbone a little something that other non-Indigenous-based firms could not. I realize I'm so fortunate when I look at the actual statistics, I think it's like 0.0000001% of Indigenous women ever get funding for a company or any venture. So having that is, that just blows my mind that like, wow, okay, we've achieved that. When I talked about that playing field before, you know, they understand how uneven it was. They themselves have just built something from nothing. Um, and also then this innate relationship with the planet that Indigenous communities have. Like it's, they, there's that understanding and that, you know, how generational trauma um, negatively impacted so many of us. And so as leaders and founders of Indigenous businesses and brands, we probably come from a family or a community that has been traumatized. And so, you know, there's a, a, there's a lot of healing going on. And I think that they truly understand that. Raven Indigenous Capital is on course to be the largest venture firm that invests specifically in Indigenous-led startups. In September of 2022, they raised $45 million of a $75 million goal, with no signs of slowing down. Paul Assert, who is a member of the Caribou Clan and belongs to the Carrier First Nation in northern central BC, sees his role as managing partner at Raven Indigenous Capital quite clearly to merge Indigenous ways of knowing with Western economic ways of doing. So Raven Indigenous Capital Partners is uh, North America's first and only uh, Indigenous-owned and Indigenous-led social finance intermediary. Um, We uh, act and live in the space in between uh, Indigenous entrepreneurs and investors, uh, and we facilitate the flow of capital towards uh, solutions in the indigenous space. Um, and, and what's important, I think, for our experience is that we provide sort of culturally grounded supports alongside capital, um, and technical skills to enable indigenous entrepreneurs, uh, to succeed. Um, and I think those are the, the features of, of decolonizing and reculturalizing the way that money behaves. So it's like less harmful and acts more like love and healing. Um, I think that distinguishes us in, in the marketplace. We really saw a, a gap uh, in the market and, and a lack of access to capital for Indigenous entrepreneurs, period. And we really saw just an incredible amount of of brilliance uh, on the part of Indigenous entrepreneurs who are like struggling to scale their ideas uh, and really not being able to access the, the capital that they needed. Um, and, and additionally, so many Indigenous entrepreneurs um, don't have a friends and family 
uh, cohort that they can go to um, for for sort of their seed money. Um, and uh, and that's a very familiar idea in the investment world. It's sort of they call it the friends and family round. And and for a lot of Indigenous people, um, you know, that we, we don't have access to that same um, uh, level of support, financial support. And so we really wanted to meet uh, Indigenous entrepreneurs early. Um, at, at an earlier stage in, in in their development, and provide them with the capital that they need to to be able to to thrive and to and to bring their their medicine to scale. A major motivation Paul and his fellow founders had when deciding to launch their firm was an attempt to get more Indigenous entrepreneurs a seat at the table, so to speak. It's something he says that's been baked into how business is done in this country since you know business began. Especially, he notes, the idea that most Indigenous folks do not have access to the often essential resource of collateralized capital. I think the obvious one is is both systemic racism and and personal bias. Um, and and I would I'll take not invited to the table from the perspective of you know the lived experience of an Indigenous person that walks into a financial institution. Um, and there are there are statutory barriers, the way the Indian Act uh, has set up, um, you know, specific barriers for for uh, Indigenous people who might live on reserve um, to be able to use on reserve assets as collateral or the inability of Indigenous entrepreneurs to use on reserve assets as collateral. Um, the lack of uh, home ownership um, that's really baked into the model of of uh, for Indigenous people that live on reserve, the the lack of intergenerational wealth. I'm a first generation residential school survivor myself. Um, my dad went to the Lajac Residential School that closed in 1984, um, and so a lot of us who are first generation Indigenous people that are living off reserve do not have access to that intergenerational wealth um, to be able to become homeowners in urban communities, and so. Um, so when often when Indigenous people walk into a financial institution, you're not just facing those systemic barriers, you're also facing um, like biases, personal biases. And the second is is sort of the, the lexicon and the way people talk, Vanessa. And, and and one of the ways that we're not being invited to the table or we be, we're being excluded is, you know, people don't people in the financial markets and 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 this and the financial system don't talk in a way that we can relate to. And they certainly don't, they, they, it's very exclusive um, and inaccessible for a lot of Indigenous people. And so, you know, part of investing, as you know, is confidence. And and if one person has, has real mastery over the kind of language that people use, the terminology, and actually the core concepts that underpin financial literacy, but investment literacy and and an indigenous person enters that space coming from a place where we think and talk very differently. We think and talk very differently about wealth. We think and talk very differently about, about the use of proceeds. Um, and we think and talk very differently about being able to articulate, um, you know, the value proposition of our businesses. And there's a mismatch there. There's a, there's a lack of capacity and it's not on the part of our people. It's on the part of the system. And so I think in a couple of those ways, we've really not been invited to the table because it's been designed to exclude us. Raven Indigenous even has a framework in place to score a startup in terms of its impact level, like assessing Indigenous ownership, 
governance, and supply chain. And extra points allotted if measurements taken, especially center Indigenous women or members of the two-spirited and LGBTQ community. Some think the idea of decolonizing investing is a straight-up oxymoron. One of the central tenets of investing is that a company must assimilate to the well-established rules of both investing and the market if they hope to get anywhere at all. Raven Indigenous certainly accepts that to decolonize investing is not an easy task for a firm to take on, but that it's far from impossible. And they're starting at the roots. One that's really critical is, is the words that we use uh, and the way that we conduct business um and so uh and so building a new lexicon um is really important but part one of the colonizing effects was to um to take away and make illegal the use of indigenous languages um and so recentering and not just indigenous languages but the underlying concepts uh of indigenous language and then um and then invoking and and actioning them in our business models so like that whole continuum of of reimagining and um, reanimating traditional teachings, indigenous languages, and the underlying epistemological like uh, that groundwork, those foundations of of being able to um, decolonize, like undo the negative impacts of colonization. Um, so I think that's really critical. Um, something that's that's that is about reculturalization uh for uh for our people is protocols we follow protocols so a, a good example is um you know when you're in the investing world and you're getting pitched um and particularly in the venture space we get pitched a lot um and um and so you know we don't always make an investment it's paramount for us that they leave that experience with their dignity, dignity intact, and to feel that they've been really deeply respected and understood, that the process has been accessible to them, and you know that can't totally remove the disappointment of of not landing on an investment. Um, and so, for example, you know we might send like a handwritten note to their home, or like a, a small, even if we say no, like a small gift, like a bit of tobacco or something, mail it to them. Um, and um, and we're we're onboarding more and more of those practices, and we refer to those as protocols, um, the rules of conducting business in a good way. Um, and and I think that's a really important part of of the you know rehumanizing the investment world. Can it because it can be pretty cold and a little bit cutthroat, um, and it's and it's part and and that's a, a lot about what love might look like when it shows up in the investing context is actually intentionality around signaling respect. Theodora Warrior Healy is from the Pekini Nation and is Blackfoot. She's also the first Indigenous Empowerment Facilitator at Momentum, a Calgary charity dedicated to community economic development. When she started at the charity as a data assistant, she noticed that of all the financial facilitators Momentum was booking, none of them had Indigenous names, despite the fact that they were hired to give Indigenous folks financial advice. She'd even taken the financial course Momentum offered, where one facilitator spoke about spending nearly $200 a month on indoor plants. That was almost the same amount Warrior received monthly on welfare. 
and she knew it was the same for many of the other participants in the room. The facilitator could not have been less relatable, and Theodora intended to do something about it. She started Money Moccasins, a financial program for Indigenous folks by Indigenous folks. So um, our curriculum is assets, budget, banking, credit, and consumerism. And I completely unpack and deliver those materials um, and resources um, <clears throat> to my audience who I, um, to hold integrity and safe space, psychological safety is so important to me. Uh, my classes are strictly for Indigenous. And so that way we have a safe space because we come from a place that nobody else does being children of survivors of residential school. Um, and so, uh, you know, we don't have to be explaining to anybody what that is. I cover all of the financial resources, not just the, um, you know, like uh, social services kind of things that are out there. Um, so sharing um, scholarship links, um, disability tax credit, um, my CRA accounts, why it's important to do your taxes and, and just really explaining things um, that aren't so intimidating. It's very, uh, it's more of a conversation um, in this facilitation. It's a storytelling of this is what I experienced because I've been right into bankruptcy. <laughs> you know, I thought I had made it when I was a hydrovac operator making, you know, almost $6,000 a month and then losing that all. So that's how this program kind of came to be was, um, you know, me experiencing everything from homelessness, um, you know, to having it all and losing it all and being in this episodic cycle. And so um, when I got the, the, the opportunity to be a voice and share um, you know, this is what happens if you don't do this, right? And I went this way, don't go that way. <laughs> Here's a better way. And this is how you can prepare your kids, right? And this is what investing is. And this is what these accounts do. And this is what, you know, how to get on track and credit scores and just really sharing that information and knowledge. Um, but yet not in a way that it's just a, an information knowledge dump. And I just leave them there. Um, you know, I've only been in this position for three years and I've only learned, um, you know, so much and I'm continuing to learn. So I always let them know that, you know, I'm walking along beside you. I am as I'm learning, I'm sharing and you're, you know, we're going together. And so, um, you know, really keeping that sense of um, equality and humility um, is, is so important because it is that connection and relationship needed in community to help community build itself. Once Theodora brought up in class that she'd gone through bankruptcy and she sure got some strange looks. So I was doing a facilitation and, um, you know, they were talking about, uh, we were talking about what could happen in terms of debt and how you can, you know, the way you can manage it somehow. And so I mentioned that I had had everything and that I had lost it all from just one, one event. And then it just turned into a series of unfortunate events and right down to my license, um, you know, having to claim bankruptcy because that's where I ended up. And, um, 
you know, and, and she laughed and she's like, they sent us somebody who's, uh, you know, been in bankruptcy to, to be talking to us about money. And I was like, well, that's why it's called financial literacy, right? Money management is a, a part of the skill, but it's who better to teach you than somebody who has made the mistakes of doing all of the things that um, end you up in bankruptcy. And that's not dealing with your credit and not addressing, uh, being honest with yourself about what you're spending your money on and um, not knowing about investing, not knowing about accounts that can help you build your wealth. And so I was like, yeah, okay, I get it, you know? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, she graduated from my class and, you know, she was very thankful for uh, everything that she had learned and and was was empowered to continue checking up on her credit and and seeing where she was at financially. Theodore has had a front row seat and lived experience herself on the challenges that live at the intersection of financial wellness and mental health as an Indigenous person. And income is a lot of it. Um, being, you know, if you're only getting $221 as a single person um, through social assistance on, on Nation, that's a huge you know, that's a very difficult place to be. I, I know I've, I've lived it. Um, and then to add children to that and still have just that little bit of money to make things stretch. So becoming so resilient, um, you know, all of carrying that intergenerational trauma and um, it can, you can see the compounds of poverty and what happens to people when they are so oppressed. And so if you're just giving them that resource that's there, that that hand that is out to help them um, empower themselves, right? So talking about mental health, talking about um, why it's important to um, address those issues that finances cause um, and, and really getting down to the root and, and that's dealing with the trauma and Theodora Warrior, a name she says is no accident, has big dreams and visions for how she'd like to see financial literacy grow for all Indigenous folks. I would love to see this on every nation, everyone have their own financial empowerment team. Um, I would love to see a network across um, Turtle Island that connects every single Indigenous out there that is in finance or in some form, either education or business or politically, um, you know, to be able to have like a map of, oh, this person is here and they need this person. So, you know, being able to see that visual network of where we are, seeing that there's, you know, only so many of us, I think that by coming together, um, you know, it could be a very impactful um just across communities that, um, you know, really begin that healing and getting down to the root of, you know, the, the trauma that, that we've experienced with money and, and having it look in a different view and empowering one another to, to better, better ourselves and better that future. When it comes to many marginalized communities, financial literacy is something that can be taught at an individual level, and that's necessary. But pushing only for assimilation creates stagnation. 
A real seat at the table doesn't only mean allowing others to learn the rules, but also allowing them to help evolve that framework into something beneficial for all players. Open Money is written and produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnston. It's hosted by me, Vanessa Bowen, with help from Ian Burns, Service Credit Union CEO. Content strategy is by Chris T. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Ryan Thompson of Hot Slice Media edits our show. And Open Money is a production of Service Credit Union. Thank you to our guests this episode, Jen Harper, Paul Assert, and Theodora Warrior-Healy for lending us their time to record this show remotely. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And tell a friend about Open Money too. I'm Vanessa Bowen, and thanks for listening. Service Credit Union. Feel good about your money.